Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lisenby. Happy Samhain, Kate. Oh, Kristen, happy Samhain. It's so good to see you and to celebrate together. Yes, so surprise listeners, as a Samhain offering, Magic and Alchemy is here today with a special bonus episode. And we're really excited about this one. But first, listener question, please. Yeah, so Bailey reached out with some questions about necromancy. They wrote, I've always been interested in the subject of necromancy and can't find much online, but it seems so deeply rooted in ancient knowledge and cultures. For listeners who might not know, necromancy is the supposed practice of communicating with the dead, especially in order to predict the future. So, Kristen, any interesting tidbits, myths, or facts? Hmm. Well, when I think of necromancy, I immediately think of Hecate our queen of the crossroads, our dark goddess. And I think using Hecate as a doorway or key um, into that world might uh, reveal some interesting stories and share some uh, unique insight into divining with the dead. Uh, And before we started recording today, I looked through my bookshelves and sure enough, I have a book (laughs) called Hecate's Liminal Rites, A Study of the Rituals, Magic, and Symbols of the Torch-Bearing Triple Goddess of the Crossroads. And there is a chapter that discusses necromancy and reanimating the dead, and it talks about how in the ancient Greek world, the standard process for necromancy was similar to funerals. It says people would dig a pit, make a fire, make libations um, such as honey, milk, water, wine, offer grain and flowers, sacrifice a black animal over a fire um, as an offering, I should say, um, and then make another offering, this one of blood, and then finally make prayers to the Thonic gods, um, those who rule the underworld. And the text goes on to say that, quote, the key difference between a funeral to bury the dead and an act of necromancy to communicate with the dead was the intent. The similarity was emphasized in texts like Seneca's Medea, describing the practitioner's hair being unbound or loosely tied for necromancy, as was the case for funerals. Offerings to the gods were burned on the fire, whereas offerings to the ghosts of the dead were made into the pit, literally into the earth. End quote. And I'll be sure to link this book in the show notes if anyone is interested or wants to read more. Mm. But Kate, what are your thoughts on necromancy? Yeah, you know, the Odyssey has been really prevalent in our home lately. Um, Cody's reading it for the first time because I gave him a copy for our trip to Greece. Um, Joke's on me. I forgot that the whole thing basically takes place outside of Greece. They're just trying to get (laughs) back to Greece. But um, (laughs) after being a retired English major, I've definitely spent some time in the past with that book. Um, 
But I did some just quick kind of searching around necromancy and the Odyssey popped up and um, I just thought that it was really interesting how necromancy is featured in the story when Odysseus travels to the underworld for information about his journey home. Directed by the sorceress Circe, he uses a spell to speak to the spirits of the dead. According to the Odyssey, he makes a drink for the ghosts, including animal blood, like you shared, Kristen, and his necromantic rites must be carried out at the entrance to the underworld. The ritual draws the ghosts to drink the blood, and when they do, Odysseus gets them to tell him the future. So it seems as if through history or pop culture, necromancy has been twisted up a bit um, in connotation, but is, by both of our examples, a practice of sacred communication or divination. And by this definition, ancestor veneration and communication, saint craft and spirit communication can be a form of necromancy. So today on Samhain, it's a beautiful time to communicate with the dead, speak to them aloud, leave offerings, remember the stories of those who have passed on, and perhaps there will be messages there for you if you will listen. And aside from, you know, ancestor worship, communication, and veneration, what are some of your favorite Samhain correspondences, Kristen? Mm, Well, like other Sabbaths, Samhain is closely tied to, you know, agricultural cycles um, and is often marked by bonfires. Bonfires were believed to ward off malevolent spirits and establish boundaries, but they may have also had something to do with farmers burning dead plants and clearing land after a busy harvest season. Today, people will honor that tradition with candle magic or by working with the element of fire at this time. It's also believed that if you're hosting a dumb supper or would like to divine with spirits at Samhain, uh, that you can place a lit candle in your window to welcome them home. Either through plant or kitchen witchery, I am also working with allspice and cinnamon, um, rosemary, and mugwort this time of year. And magic related to pumpkins and gourds and seeds is also calling to me right now, uh, which feels very underworld-ish, thinking about root vegetables, our own roots, and the seeds we leave behind. And I also love divining with the crone archetype at this time of year, crone Mm -hmm. goddesses, uh, during the dark months in general. So, you know, think Hecate, who I already mentioned, or Caridwen, Baba Yaga, uh, Mother Holly, among, among so many others. I have to say that I loved the pumpkin talk on the Witchy Business podcast with Shelby and Danielle and Caitlin Barone. Um, that just like made me smile so much. Um, <laughs> and so I'm excited for the future pumpkin folklore that's yes. coming. <laughs> but sure. yeah, at this time, I always think about the the Samhain plant allies, like you mentioned mugwort and also hawthorn and cedar oak and just tree magic in general for me which is so much threshold magic um and i know that we discuss um more of this in season one episode one which is funny to say um and also candle magic maybe working with purple or blue candle or black and white depending on the spell or incantation and sitting and practicing divination by channeled writing during this week 
Yeah, listeners, if you listen to season one, episode one, please be (laughs) kind. Um, But I think in season two, uh, episode 37, we talked about the crone uh, and episode 52 about working with ancestors. So if any of that stuff interests you listeners, check out those episodes. And now to introduce our guest for today's episode, you may recognize her name from episodes past where we've shared her poetry and word witchery. Annie Finch is an award-winning poet whose writings embody and explore the matrix of poetry, magic, and matricultures. Her books include six books of poetry, most recently Spells, New and Selected Poems, and the Poetry Witch Little Book of Spells, as well as books and essays on poetry, meter, feminism, and witchcraft, verse plays, a poetry textbook, and nine anthologies including Choice Words, a landmark collection of literature on abortion. Annie earned her PhD from Stanford University and has performed and lectured widely at universities including Berkeley, Harvard, and Oxford, and at women's conferences and spiritual venues including Emerging Women and Deepak Chopra's Home Space. She offers workshops and retreats on poetry, meter, and poetry witchery for poets, witches, and everyone in between. Sign up for Annie's Spells Letter, full of news and inspiration at AnnieFinch.net. We love this episode because it's a deep dive into matriarchal histories, ancient meter, poems as a spiritual and magical practice, witchcraft, and community. And listeners, we do discuss reproductive rights and abortion in this episode, so please take care of yourselves accordingly. Annie joined us via Zoom from her home in Brooklyn. to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have the word witch Annie Finch with us. Hi, Annie. Hi. Hi. So glad to be here, Kristen and Kate. So happy you're here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for our sound episode today. Thank you. I'm such a fan already of your wonderful podcast. So it's really great to be here. Feeling is mutual. So we love to begin our interviews by asking our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing your sun, moon, and rising sign with us today? Not at all. In fact, I can share two of each. (laughs) My whole life, I've been a double Scorpio with Libra moon. So, you know, I've been really getting deep into all this stuff. Before the podcast, we were talking about my wild experiences on some Datura journey. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm really getting deep, but at least I have this Libra moon that kind of keeps things mm-hmm. light and beautiful. And then all of a sudden I do this new chart just a month ago. It's uh, doing the processed one. So it's, you know, the way it's changed over time, like a, a, mm-hmm. little, a tiny bit each year or whatever point three degrees or something. So according to this, I'm a double Libra with a Virgo moon, <laughs> which made me really happy because I love beauty. I love people. I love connecting different. Um, one of the things I've done as a poet is to connect different aspects of the poetic world with each other and magic and poetry and witchcraft and poetry. So 
I, I just love to harmonize things. And then the Virgo, I am incredibly intense about the details of meter and rhythm and the structures of, of the magic of, of meter. So it really resonated with me to be a double Libra with a Virgo moon. So, mm. but maybe, maybe I'm all of those things. Aren't we all? Yes. <laughs> So I know that Kate and I have shared uh, some of your poems before on the podcast, but would you mind just sharing like a little bit about you and your work uh, in your own words today? Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, So I call myself Poetry Witch. I was born on Halloween on Samhain, and I've always been a witch, though I didn't even know that I was until 1990. But I've always, uh, when I finally found a witch in San Francisco, this was before the internet. So, you know, it was hard to know I was a witch until then, but I knew I was something and I thought what I was, was a poet. And poetry has been my kind of path. I have published many, many books, like 20 books of poetry or about poetry. And my particular passion uh, is meter and rhythm and the way it it creates magic for me and others. And um, I perform uh, with Poetry Witch Ritual Theater. I have done a lot of teaching of meter. Um, I, I love to share my spells. I think of my poems as spells. I'm, I'm also writing some books just about being a witch that bring poetry in. So in a way, my life has been uh, about the process of bringing together poetry and witchcraft and realizing that those things could coexist in me and then sharing that with others. Beautiful. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about that relationship between between the poems and and the magic? And then also as a follow up question, like where um, might our listeners who are longing to dive into the world of poetry and witchcraft start? Oh, um, well, the relation between poetry and witchcraft is so ancient, and if you go all the way back in the Proto European root of the word meter and the word magic are the same. It's this word meh, M-E-H, it means power. It's also the root of the word mother. So, Mm. you know, mother, magic, meter, I mean, they all were originally connected as a source of connecting with the the power in the universe, the spirit that that unites us with each other and with our deepest selves and with nature. And meter is an incredible tool for all of these things. And it's interesting because in my own path, I I got a PhD in um, English where I studied meter as, as a literary thing. At the same time, I was a witch. I was becoming a witch, doing all these rituals, and I kept these two worlds separate for so long. And then I began to realize that they came together. And what united them for me was realizing that meter has many different shapes. Because the way we learn about poetic meter now, we usually learn about iambic as the dominant meter, or even the only meter that most people know at all. It's either free verse or iambic. 
And even the most experimental poets will just default to iambic, which is the meter of Milton, Paradise Lost, patriarchal, monotheistic, Abrahamic religion, like use this meter as a controlling device. So what's been amazing for me has been to uncover what I call metrical diversity to find these other meters, the anapest, the dactyl, the trochee, these meters that have very different qualities, different energies than iambic. And if you go into other languages, like in Hindi, for example, there are hundreds of different metrical patterns that are used for spiritual work and uh, ceremony. But in English, we're, we're stuck with like free verse or iambic, that's it. So it's just so distorted. And what I've done over the decades, uh, and this amazingly, this started out with my PhD thesis, which was about um, the meaning of iambic pentameter in free verse and the way I, when, when free verse poets or metrically variable poets like Emily Dickinson, for example, she only has in all of her work, 1776 poems, something like that. She only has like a hundred lines of iambic pentameter. So I looked at those, I analyzed what their meaning was, and I discovered that for her, iambic pentameter connects with patriarchal stuff, like with imperialism. And, and I found this pattern throughout. So I began to realize that there were other meters trying to come through. And I purposely trained myself to write the other meters, the revolutionary meters. And so it actually came out of my like PhD work. It turned into what has now become over decades since then, a ritual practice and a completely liberatory uh, cycle of rhythms and meters that I teach to, to my students of poetry. It's, it's amazing. So you'll see my, I have a tattoo here and it has my owl, my poetry, which owl, and then the mm. owl is on like a medicine shield. Wait a minute, it's hard to show it. There we go. Um. With the, yeah, with the five colors. So each of these is a meter. So the south is anapestic meter. That's the meter of the will. Then the uh, east is the iambic meter. That's the meter of the mind, which is great, but it should not dominate everything. It's just one of the five. And then the north is the trochees, the meter of the body. The west, the blue, is the water. That's the dactylic meter, the meter of the heart. And then the center is amphibrachic meter, the meter of the spirit. That's the purple. So I teach all these five meters equally now. And the idea is to that poets can have this vocabulary of the diversity of five meters, a good start, a good, a good number to start with. And each of them connects with a different aspect of ourselves, with the will, the mind, the body, the heart, or the spirit. And so, you know, this creates, turns us into a much more open channel spiritually so that we can use our poetry in really magical, witchy ways. And I've discovered that even people who don't know their poets are very open to this meter, uh, to the, learning the meters. And um, I do it as a self-transformative tool as well. So I teach workshops, um, retreats. I have a retreat coming up in New Mexico in April. And I have a community called Poetry Witch Community online. Um, and I, I'm starting to branch out of the community so that people can find me more easily. So I've got classes on Eventbrite and on my website, annyfinch.com. So as far as I know, I'm the only person doing this, <laughs> uh, you know, just to be a witch who actually really was trained in meters, very unusual, because it's 
been sort of hidden knowledge for a long time. So I think people have to find me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, um, I was just going to say it's, it's so magical. Like I have a MFA in poetry and I, I don't even have this knowledge of, of meter. And, and it's just so exciting to hear you speak about it. Like all of the truth bumps on my arm. I'm just like, this is so <gasps> potent, you know, like <laughs> we need this. The- oh gosh. It's so true. We do. Right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You're not alone. I mean, nobody in an MFA program has it anymore. It really was lost. Mm-hmm. And it was just a sheer accident. I, I do think it was the goddess as well that I happened to learn this. Because in the 70s, it was dead. It was only Robert Fitzgerald at Harvard, Eva Winters at Stanford, who were teaching meter at all, and maybe Donald Justice a little bit. But I mean, that was it. It's like it was dead. Nobody knew it. And so nobody's had it for generations now. So I'm so glad that um, that the new generation is coming up and is excited about it because I do feel that it's life-saving knowledge. And if you, you know, I, I do a lot of a lot of um, research and connect with uh, women. There's a wonderful association I'm on the board of called um, ASWM, ASWM. It stands for Association for the Study of Women and Mythology. And it's goddess scholars from all over the world in all different fields, like linguistics and archaeology and sociology and the arts, really wonderful stuff. They've got these fantastic video salons. I've done one of them. And what I've learned from connecting with all of these really you know, knowledgeable women, I think they're all, almost, yeah, they're all women, um, or yeah, I think they're all, I don't know if they're all cis women, but they're all identifying as women. Um, what I've learned from all these wonderful scholars is that if you go back into the matriarchal times when the cultures were very oral based and connected to the divine feminine, that poetry was essential because they were oral cultures and poetry was how we remembered the legends and the stories and poets were the carrier of the culture and without meter that's impossible so the power of poetry is so tied into meter as well as the healing aspect of poetry the energetic frequencies of the different meters and you know for poets to to tap into this now feels so important at a time when you know the, the cultures the the Western patriarchal imperialist capitalist culture is just whacked, just totally out of control. And the poets have not been really doing our job in terms of connecting the language that we speak to the rhythms of nature and the rhythms of the spirit and the rhythms of the divine feminine. And I firmly know now that meter, firmly believe that meter is the tool to do that with. And I feel it in my own body, you know, and I, I can tell that you're aware of it and open to it too and that we all are because in our bodies we have our breath and our heartbeat and the rhythms that 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 can hypnotize us into altered states that's what we do as witches right and so meter is so geared exactly designed to do that it's it's phenomenal it gives me shivers on my spine just like you were saying like it's so much fun to be at this moment because I've spent my life building up this this understanding and not really knowing where I was going for so many decades. I didn't know 
how I could, what was wrong with me? Why was I so interested in the nerdy stuff of prosody? And then over here, I was like this total witch, like what, how are those ever going to connect? I just didn't understand how I could be the same person. And finally now in my sixties, like they're coming together into one thing and I have this gift to share and I'm just so moved that, you know, that you asked me to be on this podcast and that, that people are starting to get it. <laughs> so wonderful. Well, there's just this like beautiful conversation between those two words, like witch and poet, right? Like, I, I mean, at least for myself personally, to step into both of those words had this like sort of complicated reclamation. And so I feel like they're so akin to each other in that way, you know? Yeah. And each of them is has a, had a problematic history, right? The definition. <laughs> issue like which has such radically different definitions depending on who you're talking to and it can feel so uncomfortable and poet also like has been through so been through the ringer in terms of all these definitions yeah that's so true and of course what you're doing kate with word witch this is very similar as well right it's it's incredible that it's it's coming out maybe it's not surprising but it is incredible for me sometimes. So Annie, you mentioned a community called the Poetry Witch Community. Um, Could you talk a bit about that space and who it's for? Yes. So it's, um, it's a free community. It's on a platform called Mighty Networks, which is a fun uh, women designed um, sort of Facebook alternative, a private community. So it's at poetrywitch.org. And it's open to anyone um, who identifies as women or gender nonconforming. And it's uh, a space with discussion. There's a poet's cafe where we really talk about meter. And there's a practice area where people who are, who are working with me, like in these five directions and le- learning the metrical diversity can practice. And it used to be the place where I held all my classes as well. But um, I now have this wonderful assistant, a poet named Hannah Yarrington, um, who's just graduated from an MFA. And she convinced me that I should move out of there because, you know, that's a barrier to, you know, you have to join the community. So my classes are no longer only offered there, but it's largely still a community of people who are really interested in the intersection between poetry and witchcraft. And they don't have to be poets or witches. Some of them are poetry lovers who are witchy. Some of them are uh, witchy people who um, who love to do spells or whatever. Some of them are poets who are excited about meter. Um, so it's uh, just a sort of a constellation where you can find um, similar souls. It's funny when I first I was a tenured professor um, until 2012, and when I stopped doing that. I felt the need to share what I was, you know, my ideas and everything. And so I, I started for a while, I started like six different online communities. One was called American witch and one was called um, poets, quote craft circles. And I thought for a long time, I had to keep the witches and the poets separate because <laughs> they wouldn't understand each other. So I was balancing all these different communities. They each had a magazine and, you know, it never worked right. And then finally I got the, nerve to put them all together and it was like of course the poets are witches and the witches are poets like it's so easy (laughs) and everybody in between so it's basically for witches and poets and everyone in between so you're all anyone listening is totally welcome to join just poetrywitch.org 
and uh, you can easily catch up with what's going on and what I'm offering. And I also do have a, um, a newsletter just on my website too, if you don't want to join a community. It's in finch.com. So maybe shifting gears a little bit here, um, as we mentioned, this episode is coming out as a surprise episode on Samhain for our listeners. Mm. And and you have a beautiful poem titled Samhain. Would you be willing to read that for us and for our listeners? Thank you. I don't have a copy right here, but I believe I have it memorized. So (laughs) I will say it for you. Samhain. In the season, leaves should love, since it brings them leave to move through the wind towards the ground they were watching as they hung. Legend says there is a seam stitching darkness like a name. Now when dying branches veil earth from the sky in one last pale wave and winter dies to bring Autumn dies to bring winter back and then the spring. We who die ourselves can peel back another kind of veil that hangs among us like thick smoke. Tonight at last, I feel it shake. I feel the nights stretching away, thousands long behind the days till they reach the darkness where all of me is ancestor. I move my hand and feel a touch move with me. And when I move my young mind across another, I am with my mother's mother. Sure as footsteps in my waiting self, I find her. And she brings arms that have answers for me, intimate, awaiting bounty. Carry me. She leaves this trail through a shutter of the veil and leaves like amber where she stays, a gift for her perpetual gaze. Thank you. Thank you. I know listeners, you can't see us, but I just have like this permanent (laughs) smile on my face like the whole time (laughs) you were reading that, Annie. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And that's in the trochaic meter. So that's the meter of spells often. I love that one so much. I don't know if I mentioned that I, maybe I didn't make it clear. Thank you that um, the poem it's interesting. I have a Wheel of the Year series of poems in my book um, Spells or my book Calendars. And that was the first one. That one came all by itself a long time earlier. So it's a little different. The others were written for ritual performance, but that one was just like an individual meditation that came to me. But I did want to mention that um, for poets out there, if you like that, if you like hearing the rhythms, um, that's what I do. That's what I teach. Like, I don't even, I, I taught creative writing for a long, long time. And now I only teach meter because I just love it so much. It just makes me so happy. And I've discovered there are other poets out there that who, who it makes happy too. Like, I think I need it. Like, I physically need meter. 
I need to write in it. I need to read it. I need to hear it. It feeds me. And um, I've been doing some teaching this week at Westchester University about this stuff. And it's the same thing. Like you feel it in your body, you know? And um, so I teach workshops. I have this new one coming up called Meter and Magic. And then I have the more advanced one, Formal Feeling Workshop. And I just have to say the work coming out of those workshops, the poems are so amazing. They're so great. And they're really, if you think about it, like you think about poetry workshops and MFA programs, there are, you know, they're all free verse based. So if you are interested in meter and you write in meter, then you could bring it to a class like that and you're not going to get the kind of feedback that's giving you, you know, the feedback within the context of meter. But in these workshops that I'm teaching for the first time, and they're all women, basically only women and gender nonconforming people, you know, in this space, you can have the experience of writing, a, trying out meter, um, or, or if you're used to it, use doing it, and then people will give you feedback and they know what you're doing. So they'll be like, oh yeah, that accent sounds a little different. Or what if you changed that rhythm right there? And they, you know, it's just a, it's so much fun. And the level of the work is astonishing that's coming out of it. It's so beautiful. So, I mean, I'm really glad that you love the poem and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I love the poem too. And I'm so glad that you like it, but I also have to say that it's the meter. That's such a powerful part of it. Not that all metrical mm-hmm. poetry is, is effective, but it sure yeah. doesn't hurt. I, I feel like uh, in poetry education, it's often like the really like opaque and hard meter that is taught. Like that's how I always came to it was like something to be like solved in my brain instead of like felt or experienced. And like, but then, yeah, exactly. The spells have such a beautiful rhythmic thing. They just never came together in my brain, in my education. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Because it's through the mind that that we that people usually teach meter, they teach it like a mind thing when actually it's a body, heart, spirit thing and will too, actually, I think. So like with, with my five, my wheel of five meters, you know, will, mind, body, heart, spirit. Um, I, I feel that meter is subversive and that one of the reasons that it has been suppressed um, is because it threatens the power of the mind. It, it threatens, you know, it threatens the hegemony of, of well, basically of like patriarchal control, which I think really sort of depends on the mind. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I, I increasingly feel that patriarchy is based on the mind and that body, heart, will, and spirit are all kind of just more natural cultural forces. And, you know, that, that the mind is, and patriarchy, and maybe... You know, men in general are better when they're helping, when they're in a, in a helping role, but not in a controlling and governing role. Mm-hmm. And um, that goes, you know, metrically as well. So, yeah, it's kind of tragic how lost we are. And then people forget. It's like because of printing and because of books, sometimes people don't even know. Like they'll look at that poem I just I just performed for you so and mm-hmm. and they won't even hear it in their right brain and they won't feel it in their body on the page because if you haven't been brought 
to the point of experiencing poetry as a holistic physical reality, you have to hear it to, to be reminded of that. It's like we haven't lost it. It's still so close to us. It's still, you know, completely part of us as much as it ever has been part of human beings. Like our bodies haven't changed, our souls haven't changed, our hearts haven't changed at all. But when we, because of writing, when you look on the page, your mind responds to the page. And if you haven't had the prior opening of your heart and your spirit and your and your uh, body into meter, then when you see it on the page, you won't know how to open into it. And so it could remain locked for you until you read it aloud. And I've had people sometimes who discuss one of my books, like in a book circle, um, and they just, maybe they're not getting it the way they would if I was there reading it to them. So I'll be like, did you read the poem aloud? And they're like, no, why would we do that? <laughs> and so then so I, one time I was like, okay, well, let's, why don't we do it? Let's just read one of, one or two aloud. And they were like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's exactly, that's, that's the magic key. You should put a big sign on your book saying, read aloud, read aloud, read aloud, because it changes everything. It gets you out of your left brain into your right brain, into your intuitive self. Yeah. So. It's like Emily Dickinson said, right? Like she knew she had heard a poem when she felt as if the top of her head had been taken off. Like it's like exactly. a bodily experience. It's a bodily experience, yeah. And, and her use of meter, just thinking about it, my back of my neck does that thing. She she also talked about that, right? The hairs in the back of her neck, I think. Or no, maybe that was somebody else. But yeah, exactly. That's the power of poetry, really. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. point in my, in my book. And maybe going back to Samhain, just, just for a moment here, how are you celebrating this year? Any plans? Uh, yes, well... I mean, it's my birthday, so I always combine it with that. And it's my first year in Brooklyn. So I love to go out and do stuff. Like last year, I was in Manhattan in the parade in the West Village. And this year, I hope to find stuff in Brooklyn. I'm going to ask you about that later, if you know things. And then I'd have my own um, ritual that I do. I have a, a little circle uh, that's starting so I may do it with them or just alone but I always do an ancestor ritual where I write notes uh, to I, I cast a little circle and then I light a candle and I write notes to people I love who've passed along and um, burn them and send them up so I, I love to do that and have a little ancestor altar so that's basically what I'm going to do mm, sounds beautiful And I know as a witch, the seasons influence your work quite a bit. So could you just speak a little bit about how the seasons show up in your work and, you know, how they influence you in your creative, but also your magical practice? I love that. Well, um, my book Calendars, which remains one of my favorite books, is all organized around the wheel of the year. So uh, there's a series of eight poems and um each you know the the poems in it are sort of organized around that the mood of each one and that was that has been a really important book for me in opening up the connection between poem and spell so now yeah i you know i don't think it's a coincidence that you know in haiku you always know what season it is the poet always refers to the season and so much of my poetry arises 
directly out of encountering nature, um, either or the body of the world or human bodies. A lot of it arises out of sex as well. My new book is all going to be about sex. So in the same way that I experience like the physical reality of bodies, I also experience the physical reality of the body of the world. So um, it's, you know, it'll, it'll just naturally come often with its own rhythm, the poem and the seasonal, you know, images will, will arise along with the poem completely. And yeah, I do, um, I, I, I teach, I facilitate groups called the Enchantress Circles. We do every, um, every new moon where we use the rhythms together to set intentions for the new moon and, uh, and the power of each one, whether it's will, mind, body, heart, or spirit, we cycle through them. And then I also do circles that are um, for the wheel of the year. So I have a ritual for each, um, each uh, espat that, um, sorry, each sabbat, each sabbat. <laughs> um, so those often I use poetry in those as well, like to connect with that particular moment in the year. So I, I, for me, those are more um, communal. Like when I'm really aware of the Sabbaths, it's the poems are more communal poems. Like they're meant for ritual. They're meant to be said together or danced or something like that. And then there's this other way that they just naturally arise from being outside. I live near the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and um, I've been wandering there a lot now. I've always lived near some kind of nature so that I can, you know, walk, walk through it and just allow things to come to me. So it usually comes with a very clear awareness of the seasons of where we are in the wheel of the year and what that means spiritually and also emotionally, you know, um, just as we cycle through I mean, mortality, Dickinson said death was the flood subject. So, you know, I think the seasons really make us constantly aware of that. And I, I find that just so moving the connection between um, any particular moment and the way it, the way it recurs, the way it cycles around, where it is in the process of growth and death. And, um, so yeah, I guess it permeates all of my poetry in that way. On this podcast, we've discussed Inanna and her story before and the kind of underworld descent in, in autumn. And I would love to read your poem, Inanna, if that's okay with you. Yes, I'd love to hear you read that, Kate. A young goddess, full of love, fresh with the touch of a husband, carrying power and rich with anger, strength, urgency, understanding, follows the direction her ear has led her, down to the place where the underworld glistens. At each door, she removed a jewel, a belt, a ceremonial robe, at each door, she is less and more. She bows down through the seventh door. The young goddess is dead and waiting. The young goddess is dead. A goddess goes down and I can see her. She needs to go, decides to go. A goddess goes down and I can hear her. This is just such a stunning piece. Thank you. Um, and in an interview in 
2002, you said that myths, especially unfamiliar myths, inspire you because they give you fresh ways to be human. So how do myths and histories and stories impact and influence your craft and, and your writing? Oh, I love that question. And it's interesting to hear that earlier answer. Uh, since then, I've learned so much more about myth and I've read so much more about um, the, the etiology, the, um, the origins of, of spirituality and, and myth. And that's brought me back so much to the goddess, to um, the goddess of the witches, to all of the goddesses, the thousands and thousands of, of goddesses all over the world. Um, through this organization, Association for the Study of Women in Mythology, ASWM, I've learned so much. And so my new book is, um, I'm really excited about my new book. I just finished it. It's called Coven. And it is divided into five sections, one for each rhythm, each meter. And um, the book was finished like eight years ago. I had already worked on it for like five years, but I spent another eight years making the rhythms exactly right because I wanted one book that just was a perfect gift to the goddess with like these meters like so clear that people can really hear them and maybe use them. But so many of the poems in there are mythic and goddess poems. Um, they open me up spiritually. I mean, I guess they are their channels into my sense of the divine feminine um, the myth of Inanna, the myth of Hecate, the myth of, oh my gosh, so many, Yamaya, um, Sibel, all of these different stories. They, they, they're political for me. They're not just spiritual. They're also political because they remind me that the power structures that, I'm, that I've lived under, the patriarchal, distortions of, of my own power are not necessary. They really can, things can be a completely different way and probably used to be really different. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite convinced that the earliest cultures were, were um, goddess-centered cultures. And yeah, there's all that. I also, you know, I've done a lot of shamanic training and I'm right now doing this wonderful form of therapy called IFS, Internal Family Systems, which allows for a lot of shamanic self-transformation. So I, I really do feel that myths were originally probably individual people's shamanic journeys. Like, I don't think they were, you know, written down and imposed by anybody in particular, but they, they grew out of psychic um, psychological experiences that people had um, experiences of healing so I just love the freedom that, that myths give me uh, I should mention right now um, abortion speaking of politics and um, I have a, a play that I wrote it's a, a sacred play uh, about a sacred abortion and um, Inanna figures in it it's, it's based on the Goddess chant, um, Isis Astarte, Dayana, Hecate, Demeter, Kali, Inanna. And the whole uh, shape of the play follows those 
the shape of that chant with a section for each of those goddesses as the story unfolds. And it's about um it's about a woman named Marie who is raped and then um has an abortion. And the, she has the abortion, speaking of Inanna, um by going to visit the goddess Kali and then Kali takes her into a room where there are hundreds and hundreds of statues of goddesses and there she she stays there for three days and three nights because you know Inanna also went down to the underworld for three days and three nights the that original story and um and while she's there Inanna and her sister and Hejuena she she drinks and she drinks the herb Queen Anne's lace and then um Inanna comes to her and basically gives her the abortion in this spiritual way so like that's the kind of thing that could never be possible without mythology right um i can make up my own story but by using the goddess inanna in in my play to you know to, to give her this abortion experience it ties into millennia and millennia of of spiritual experience and from a time when women's women's experience was central and when the experience of you know abortion was very different than it is now it wasn't about being controlled our bodies were not being controlled by patriarchy it was really much more um you know self-determined powerful experience so that's the kind of thing that mythology enables you know politically as well as just spiritually opening up these incredibly powerful experiences for me um i have to say that my in my book coven the very first poem now it's kind of the um the invocation to the book you know calling on the power of the past it's dedicated to anhejuana who was the prince the priestess of inanna and Sumer. so inanna is right there at the beginning of the book huge book witches and they love a good book recommendation so I have to ask are you reading anything worth sharing right now or if not like do you have a favorite book that you just like love to return to again and again oh wonderful both well right now I'm rediscovering bell hooks Mm. I hadn't read her in a long time and one of my best friends sent me um an essay by Bell Hooks from her book, uh, The Will to Change. And she was like, she sounds just like you. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> book. What's going on about, yeah, it's so great. So reading that again has just been amazing. She's such a luminescent writer and so right on. And, you know, all this stuff that she wrote decades ago is more important than ever. So Bell Hooks. And then a couple of the books that I really really find so helpful and so important one of them is by alice miller who is both you know the drama of the gifted child she's just this incredibly insightful writer on psychology or sort of anti-psychology anyway my favorite book of hers is a little book called the untouched key it's a very liberating book and it talks about the myth of abraham and isaac and you know, this idea that 
a parent would kill their child because he's not looking down at his child's face and can't see the pain. Instead, he's looking up at this authority figure, this you know, patriarchal God. And Alice Miller's work is all about the way parents, you know, uh, destroy their children without even wanting to. She has, she's very famous for her work, work on Hitler's childhood. And, you know, it's incredible, the connection. You can clearly see the childhood playing out in, in what he did later. So, you know, the compassion in her work and the courage and the wisdom is amazing. But this one little book, The Untouched Key, it's just, to me, in a nutshell, it talks about the tragedy of our culture. And it's a plea to get out of that pattern of appealing to God as a way to hurt each other and, you know, just looking for a new way. It's an incredible book, The Untouched Key. And another book that I find super helpful is, uh, well, of course, When God Was a Woman by Merlin Stone. Mm -hmm. Anybody hasn't read that? That's just such a useful book, I think, to talk about, you know, how we got to where we are uh, from where we were and how we can hopefully get back. And I have right here on my desk, amazingly enough, this goddess statue, the statue of Diana of Ephesus, was oh, Merlin Stones. This was oh. Merlin Stones. This was on her desk. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I got invited last December to Florida to give a winter solstice ritual poetry reading. I do this poetry witch ritual theater. And they wanted me to come down to Florida and do this. And I went down there and it turned out that my host was very close friends with Merlin Stone and her husband at the end of her life. And he ended up getting all this stuff that was Merlin Stone's. He gave mm. this to me. It was from her desk. Isn't it incredible? So what a, what a responsibility, what an honor, what a legacy. It's, it's just really uh, humbled me and made me aware that um, you know, how important it is to, to do right by all of this knowledge where we are right now and to bring it out to the world, which is why I think your podcast is so wonderful and so important. Um, you're doing such a great job with it. Thank but, you. you know, just to, you. to get this crucial knowledge out there. And it's, you know, it's real. Like it's at where we are right now from all the work that was done in the seventies to do all this reclamation. And then now we have these tools to spread it much more widely. Like this is such a key moment and we see patriarchy crumbling all around us with what's happening in Iran. Incredible article today in the New York times about schoolgirls in Iran protesting, uh, burning their headscarves. It's, it's unprecedented. This moment of, of liberation for the divine feminine and the power of the feminine. So, so important. But anyway, so that book, When God is a Woman, and the last book I'd love to mention is a book called Matriarchal Societies. It's by Heidi Guttner Abendroth, who's a great, great scholar of matriarchies in Germany. And this book she wrote a while back, but it's only been translated into English in the last couple of years. And it's a survey of the entire planet and which are the matriarchal societies, the ones, usually the ones that were hidden, left alone, because, you know, it seems more and more clear it was all matriarchal. That's how the human species was. And um, she has surveyed them all and what they have in common with each other. And it's just, it's such a, a beautiful, thick, 
you know, resource, but it's also just reassuring to see, yeah, this is real. And there still are matriarchal societies, like big ones around. It's not like some mm-hmm. weird myth. It's reality. In fact, it's more natural, more, you know, and, and so she, in, in this wonderful book, Matriarchal Societies, Heidi Gittner Abendroth, and she's involved in that organization I've already mentioned a couple of times, ASWM, ASWM, Association for the Study of Women in Mythology. That's how I know about her work, because so many of these great women scholars, uh, kind of like me, they've also given me hope because they were not, they didn't really find the home that they probably deserved based on the quality of their work and their research. They ended up not finding like a home in traditional academia. So they've had to create their own resources. There's another one called the Suppressed Histories Archive, which um, incredible work that they offer, the Suppressed Histories Archive about um, goddess stuff and matriarchal stuff, unbelievable thousands and thousands of images from, you know, that, that you just don't see. Uh, so um, in matriarchal societies, Heidi Gutner-Abendroth talks about the four qualities of a matriarchal society that, that distinguish them all around the globe in all of her really, really top-notch research she has discovered. And these things are so amazing. One of them is consensus decision-making, One of them is a gift economy, uh, which um, Genevieve Vaughn, another person I really admire, she's an economist. One of her her great book is called Forgiving, and it's about the gift economy, which she calls the maternal gift economy. That's really based on you know the way that mothers share, Um, and she says mothers can be any gender, but the act of mothering um, is to share, um, you know. Just it's not about exchange, it's about gift. That's the main thing. So gift economy characterizes matriarchal societies. People just, you know, they give. It's not about exchange. It changes everything. And then the third is matrilineal family structure. Super important. So the societies are structured around groups of women together. Um, The daughters stay with their mother when, you know, the husband comes into the family at, at night to sleep with his wife. And then in the daytime, he usually goes back and helps his mother. So it's called a walking marriage, completely different. So nothing to do with the nuclear family. It's groups of women together are the, are the culture, are the society. And it's a matrilineal family, natural local, uh, completely different. And then the final, the fourth thing is worship of the divine feminine. Uh, so consensus decision-making, gift economy, matrilineal, matrilocal family structure, worship of the divine feminine. And because I think of everything in terms of my five directions, I'm writing a book now about all that stuff. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, okay, well, this is four things, right? So if I think about my five aspects of my sacred circle, will, mind, body, heart, spirit, then the the mind has to do with decision-making, right? So instead of authority, you have consensus decision-making. That's a different way of thinking in the mind. Um, and in the body, um, you have the, 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 the body is where I would, I would put the abundance and the financial and all that stuff. So it's like a gift economy. So the exchange economy would be about the body, right? A totally different way of thinking about things. Instead of capitalism, you have the gift. Um, and then 
in the in the West, which is the heart. That's where the community would be instead of a nuclear family with the uh, patriarchal family structure. You have the matrilineal, matrilocal, and then in the center, in the spirit, instead of the um, monotheism and religion and rules and all that stuff. Instead, you have the worship of the divine feminine, which is, you know, poly, all kinds of wonderful goddesses everywhere and gods too, and um, intuitive ritual, very, very different kind of spirituality. And then I was thinking, okay, what about the will? What about the fifth direction? And so I feel that the fifth direction has to do with sexuality, creativity, passion, desire. And so I have a hypothesis that the fifth quality of a of a matriarchy, in addition to consensus decision-making, gift economy, naturally a family structure, and worship of the divine feminine, would be sexual and reproductive autonomy and respect for each person's each person's desire, which is the first law of witchcraft, right? If it harms no one, do what you will. And the will is such an important aspect of ourselves that we tend to forget. We talk about body, mind, we talk about heart, so we talk about spirit. We rarely talk about will unless you're a witch, and then it's the first thing. So when the thing that really opened up my way of thinking about all this about 20 years ago was when I switched from four directions to five. I used to just have a four-direction model, mind, body, heart, spirit. And then when I realized that I, there needed to be a fifth one, and the fifth one was the will. It changed everything. So this is why for me, five is really crucial. And in my memoir, there'll be a really interesting part about five and my family. There's this whole thing about the number five. But anyway, five has been like an anchor for me. It's helped me. It just reshifted, recalibrated everything. So with the will, sexuality, the fifth difference between like the current system and the matriarchal system, I believe would be this respect for the individual will, including sexuality. And this is where it's so important what we're going through right now with abortion rights and all the rest of it. So anyway, long story short, Heidegger and Rabindroth, Matriarchal Society is one of my favorite books. Can't wait to read it. Life-changing. And The Untouched Key, also amazing. Yeah, I've been sure. noting all these as you've been talking. I have like a little book list already from this <laughs> conversation. So this is great. Thank you. So Annie, you spoke a little bit briefly about, about your work with abortion. Um, and I know that you have a book uh, that, that speaks a little bit to this. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that project and about that aspect of, of your work? Yes, yes. Of course, it's so important right this minute. And hopefully, if someone's listening to this in the future, it won't be so important then. But uh, Roe versus Wade has just been overturned, which is really hard to say. Um, so my book is called Choice Words, Writers on Abortion. It's an anthology from Haymarket Books. And I started to edit it after I had an abortion in 1999. So it was a 20-year project, and um, it includes a ton of writing about abortion by great, great, great writers, just you know, Audre Lorde and Gloria Steinem and Joyce Carol Oates and Mary Wollstonecraft, and a ton of great writers. And, and also like these teenagers from Kenya and all kinds of people. It's 
many amazing writers over five centuries, six continents of writing. So it's been, it's an incredible book and it has a discussion guide that goes with it. And I just want to share that uh, Haymarket Books has promised to give five free copies of the book to anyone who starts a discussion group around it. And I have a dream that there could be, like I created a discussion guide for the book and that, you know, especially if anyone's interested in trying to start like, well, any kind of book discussion group around it, they're so moving. I've done several of them and they're incredible when you get people talking um, who've had abortions, different generations, or, you know, just who who's, it's affected their life. Um, and then also I'm hoping for more bipartisan conversations like across political parties, because where it might be really hard to have a straight off discussion about abortion with people who really disagree. I think that when you're talking about great literature, it opens up a space for conversation. Uh, the word witches, the word witchery of, of what's in the text can create an understanding where maybe that couldn't happen in any other way with really, really great writing as, as this book is full of. So, uh, and it's also amazing because abortion is one of the great literary themes and it combines birth and death into one thing. It's amazing. And it's been completely hidden. Like a lot of the stuff in this book was out of print. It was subdued. It was suppressed. Some of it wasn't even written. People wrote to me and were so grateful because this book gave them permission to write about their abortion for the first time. And these are not, you know, there are a lot of books out there now, people telling their abortion story, which is great, but this is actually really, really great, great writers. So poems, stories, plays. Anyway, it's a, it's a really incredible book and I'm glad that it's getting a lot of impact. And if anyone wants to start a discussion group, you can get five free copies. You just go to Haymarket Books. Amazing. So important. Uh, changing the zeitgeist about it, you know, might be more effective at this point than just having more and more political fights. So what I'm really trying to do is to reclaim the power of the power over life and death as a birthright of of women. And you know, without that, I don't think we're ever going to get anywhere because having people quibble over the age of the fetus or rape or incest is completely missing the point. Mm-hmm. The point is that this is the power that comes with being a woman and the culture has to recognize that. And I think this literature, when you read all this literature, it changes the whole feeling about it because you realize how there are so many different ways of handling abortion in different cultures. And it's really up to us how we want to do it. It does not have to be a matter of shame or guilt or anything else. And the other thing I want to say is that ritual is so important. And I, d- I didn't talk about it in this book, but there's a new project coming up, um, which is going to be about abortion rituals. And based on my experience, um, after I had my abortion, I was actually really depressed for a long time. And even though, you know, I didn't have any particular reason to be, but I thought, and then finally I realized that I didn't, I needed a ritual. 
And I needed a ritual that would involve my family because like so many women, I didn't have the abortion just for myself. I had it for my family. I had it for my existing kids. I had it for, um, for the larger group. And, but yet I was carrying the experience alone. So after I had this ritual and involved my family in the ritual, it changed everything. Like I was completely relaxed and happy about it ever since. Never been an issue. But before the ritual, it wasn't working. So, you know, as you will know, your witches, we're all witches. We know ritual matters, really matters. And around abortion, it really matters. So I just recently put an essay online called Abortion as a Sacrament. And um, I, I do feel that there's something right at this nexus of life, birth, death, abortion, sexism, the end of patriarchy, like it's all happening right now. We'll make sure to link that essay for listeners in the show notes. So you can, you can go listen or go read that there, listeners. Thanks. And, and Annie, um, we're running out of time here. I could talk about all of this forever, but um, before we go, what are some current projects you're excited about um, and where can our listeners connect more deeply with your work? Well, the book I'm working on now is called Nine Abortion Rituals, and I'm really excited about that, but it's not out yet, so I probably shouldn't even mention it. Um, <laughs> my book, Coven, which is just finished, but for now, um, the books I would mention would be um, Spells, New and Selected Poems from Wesleyan University Press, and the Poetry Witch Little Book of Spells, which is also from Wesleyan University Press. It's a really cute little pocketbook, and it, it just skims off like the most powerful moments from Spells. So those are my two most recent books. For people who are interested in writing poetry and they want to um, learn more about how to use meter, this is my uh, my book, A Poet's Craft, Comprehensive Guide to Making and Sharing Your Poetry, is full of information and people have found it super useful for getting into, well, this actually covers a lot of aspects of writing poetry, but specifically it has a lot of stuff about how to write meter in it. And I also have an anthology I edited called Measure for Measure, an anthology of poetic meters, which has poems in all the different meters that you can read aloud. And it's the only anthology that is sort of groups them and gathers poems by meter. So that's a fun one. Um, I have a book called The Body of Poetry, which talks about being a woman poet um, and meter and form and uh, feminism and just a, a lot of a lot of stuff. And then I'm working on so many projects right now, but they're not out yet. So I'll just say I'm working on a memoir. I'm working on a book about the five directions. I'm working on a guide to writing spells for poetry witches. Cool. So all of these books, I hope, will be out there pretty soon because um, I've been working on them all for a long time, but they're just ready to pop, hopefully, in the next year or two. And meanwhile, you can find out about what I'm doing at AnnieFinch.com. I have spells letter, any spells letter, where I um, will be sharing what I'm up to and where people can find me. And if you want to join Poetry Witch community at poetrywitch.org, that's also a great way to stay connected with me. So I would love to meet anybody who listens to this podcast because I think you just rock. Thank you, Annie. 
Before we go, I'd love to read one more of your pieces, Blessings on the Poets, if that's okay with you. I would love that. I'd love to hear you read it. Thank you. Patient earth digger, impatient fire maker, hungry word taker, and roving sound lover, sharer and saver, muser and acre, you who are open to hide or uncover, Timekeeper and hater, wake sleeper, sleep waker. May languages language, the silence that lies under each word, move you over and over, turning you, wondering, back to surprise. so much Annie and listeners for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East End Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be for something better. Until next time.